0: Well, I've been excited about this series for months because I knew it was going to be a fun series and uh, because what else can you think that brings more joy than talk about the words of Jesus? And so we, we decided to take a little different approach. and Rather than just tell you what he says, we're going to tell, tell you what he wouldn't say. And uh, the, Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. He's the embodiment of the Word of God. Don't you love it when someone embodies something positive? And they, they don't just say it, but they, they actually are that. They become that in your life. We've all had that. We've all had you know people who say they appreciate us, that they love us, and those are good things to hear. But, but don't you love when someone embodies that, when someone lives out to you that I love you? And so Jesus uh, embodied it, and he spoke it. So, so what he spoke is extremely important, and what he didn't say, is extremely important. So today we're going to start with this statement. We're going to say to you that Jesus wouldn't say, You're hopeless and I can't help you. Isn't that good news? Jesus would never say, You're hopeless and I can't help you. Now we're going to read in Matthew 12, Here is my servant, verse 18, whom I have chosen, the one I love. This is a prophetic passage taken from the book of Isaiah. In whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Jesus is talking about himself, but he's speaking from the voice of the Father. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will, will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man, to illustrate what he just said, who was blind and mute. They go, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We're going to bring you someone who's really hopeless. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? The first sentence originating with ancient Isaiah here, Here is my servant, kind of says it all, really sets it up. You compare that, think of that. Think of the the deity who shows up and he is not called potentate or boss or master or king, he is called servant. Here is my servant. That kind of says it all. Compare that to the God of Sinai when the children of Israel uh, met God the Father from Sinai, they begged Moses not to see him. They begged Moses to hide, his, hide him from us. We can't bear to look on him. It's too, it's too powerful. It's too much. And even Moses had to wear a veil in order to go into the presence of God. And compare that to the, the gods of Greek mythology that were horrible, uh, angry, vengeful, capricious gods that are depicted, gods like Zeus and all, that were depicted in Greek mythology. Those are the gods that the culture that Jesus was speaking into were familiar with, but the God that was sent to us, the representation of God that was sent to us, is sent to us as our servant. Think of the vocabulary. When we talk about what would Jesus say, think of the vocabulary of a respectful servant when you, you, you have a respectful and competent servant and you present them with a problem, something's, something's not clean or something's, um, something's broken um, or something's not being well served, a competent servant goes, I'll take care of that for you, sir. I'll take care of that for you, ma'am. I got it. Don't worry about it. That's what a good. That's what a good, competent servant says. So think about that. When I introduce you to Jesus, I'm introducing you to a good, competent servant. And when you take him the problems of your life, he says, "No problem." Don't you love to hear that? Don't you love to hear that when somebody says somebody who's somebody who's who has competence says to you, "No problem. We can. I think we can help you." We all encounter negativity, though. We all encounter those people who in some ways say our situation is really negative. That we shouldn't be trying to do what we're doing. That we shouldn't predict success. Like, I had the church leader who told me 30, 32 years ago, "You, Phil, I don't think you're a New England pastor. I don't think you should try this. And maybe, maybe he was right to a certain degree, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, as it turns out, as it turns out, I'm kind of a cerebral approach. I'm not saying I'm intellectual at all. I don't say that at all, but I do have a cerebral approach to preaching and cerebral approach to think through all this. And, and it turns out that New Englanders are weak and smart, and and they like that. So I think I'm doing okay, right? <laughs> But no one's ever been as negative as I've been to myself. Though I, I, I know, I know what it is to walk through a very spiritually, emotionally challenging time. Um, I would say that for me, uh, it intensified around 2004. Uh, I kind of had a nine, nine, ten-year period that I, I kept doing my job and I kept hanging in there, but I had some very dark days and. They were more dark than was healthy, I would say that, and, and normal. Some of it I could explain to you in causal ways. So this happened, so that happened. Some of it was just a pure demonic attack on my life. And At times I turned in directions that weren't God. But I want to tell you something, and this is so true, and I, I know I can't prove it to anybody, but every time I turned to the Lord, I always heard, I love you. I always heard I like you. <laughs> and I always heard, don't quit. It's gonna be okay. I always heard that. I never once heard from the Lord, you're hopeless. I can't help you, no matter how dark it felt. And during that time I bumped into Matthew 12:18, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He said, He will not crush. The bruised reed, the smoldering week, that refers to, the, to uh, the failures of our lives. That refers to our failing lives and the failing dreams. That's what it refers to. And while if, if God were more efficient, he would pour water on us and push us out. If he were more efficient, he would stop because we're not a very good investment. We're, we're, it's not very efficient to try to help a human being who's down on the bottom somewhere. It's not very efficient. It's much better to be like a, a, like, say, a pro sports team that, you know, that all these guys are, right now it's rookie mini camp at Gillette Stadium, and all these guys are showing up. I don't know, 100 guys or something, uh, 90, I don't know. A lot of guys are showing up, and, and they're all uh, way better athletes than any of us, but... But most of them aren't going to make the grade. They're going to be cut in a few weeks. They're going to be sent to either go to another team or some of them will never ever get a chance ever again to play pro sports. Because it's not efficient to keep people around who who aren't the top of their game. It's not efficient. But I want you to know something. You have a very inefficient God. And you better be thankful that you do. You have a very inefficient God who doesn't doesn't play by the rules that everybody else plays by, but a God who is merciful and kind and a God who wants the best for you and a God who believes in you. I learned that. So Jesus would never say, that's something he would never say to failing humans with our failing dreams. He would never say, you're hopeless. I can't help you. Amen? You're going to like this sermon because this is, most of us Relate to it. There's a couple of you that don't, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get to you another week. <laughs> Jesus would never say you're hopeless. I mean, let me tell you, I'm gonna break it down for you. Right in our it's right in our text today. First of all, he would never say you're hopeless because that would be unjust. And I, I know you don't believe that, but let me try to make you believe it. That it would be unjust. And justice is his ultimate aim. Listen what it says. Listen what our text says. A bruised reed will he not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, until he leads justice to victory. Notice that. He's saying that helping this failing human over here is the reason I'm helping them because their situation is unjust. It is not justice that they should be in the situation that they are in. Psalms 103, and there's dozens of verses like it, that say the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Somehow we separate righteousness from justice. And we think, okay, I'm unrighteous, therefore if if I get justice, I'm going to get hell. Because I'm unrighteous, because I have sinned, and I've fallen short of the glory of God. If if justice happens to me, hell is going to happen to me. I'm going to be snuffed out if justice happens to me. But that is very wrong. That is a very wrong idea. That that your sinfulness means that justice would be to crucify you or justice would mean to put you in hell. Uh, first of all, let me say this: what is very clear here is that Christ sees Himself as a victim injust, of injustice alongside us. He sees himself as a victim of injustice alongside us. That's very interesting because how could an ever all-powerful deity ever be a victim? How could Jesus become, how could he den- identify with our injustice? Well, the answer to that puzzle is really quite simpler. simple. It's really quite simple. No matter how powerful you are. And I believe he's powerful you will become a victim of injustice if you choose to love. If you choose love over control, you will always become a victim of injustice. So God put mankind in a garden, in this garden of Eden, in this sinless, perfect place, but he chose rather than to control them he chose to love them and love meant liberty and love meant freedom and he made himself he made himself vulnerable to the injustice of the serpent The injustice of the serpent who would go and he made himself vulnerable to the injustice of Adam and Eve, our first parents. He made himself a a victim of their injustice because it was truly unjust what they did to God, what they did with God. See, we, we blame everything on God, but we don't realize that God is with us. When we, are, when we are treated unjustly and when we feel that life is treating us unjustly, we don't understand it, but God is alongside us because He has been treated unjustly. He has been treated unfairly. He has been treated wrongly. God has been sinned against. Do you get it? That's why David would say, when he said against the only have I sinned, I don't fully understand that passage of scripture and I'm someday I'm going to figure it out, but I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't figured it out why David said against thee and against the only have I sinned. I, quite, I haven't quite figured that out, but we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it that, that humanity has sinned against God, that there's an injustice that's co- been com- com- committed against the Most High God, not because the Most High God is weak, not because the Most High God is is, is harmless, but because the Most High God is Love, and when you love, you make yourself open to being treated unfairly. If you, some of you, have decided not to love for that reason, and you've become vengeful and bitter and miserable because you've decided that injustice will never be committed to you again, against you again, but you've lost your tu- you've lost touch with God, you've lost God in your life. And you will not return to God until you become vulnerable, until you let go of that. And you come alongside, and you realize that God is suffering alongside you. Now, now I haven't, I haven't gotten to my point yet, really, on this. But if you're wrestling with failure, because what, what, what I'm saying to you is that in your brokenness, and even in your sinfulness, you're a victim of injustice. And if you're wrestling with failure, you're probably hearing from yourself and others it's your fault. That's probably what you're telling yourself. And that's probably what other people are telling you. It's your fault. Well, it's not. It's your responsibility. But it's not your fault. Psalmist David said this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What's just about that? What's just about a newborn baby being conceived in sin what's just about that that a newborn baby is born self-absorbed full of potential for all kinds of badness that's not just. The fact that you were born fatally flawed is unjust and it's unfair. And what's worse is you were born into a family of fatally flawed people who live in a town of fatally flawed people who are located in a state of, of a state somewhere of fatally flawed people and of, of of a nation that's full of fatally flawed people who are connected with a family of other nations that are all fatally flawed. I mean, the fact that the lights are on, the toilets flush, and the traffic lights work is almost unbelievable (laughs) we're so fatally flawed your hopelessness is not fair it's an injustice committed against you by the fallen nature of all mankind Adam and Eve made a deal with the devil without our having a voice they spoke for us favor ain't fair well neither is failure you're contending today with uninvited demons Within you and without you. But what you need today and what I want to offer you is a head-on collision with John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And what was the Word looking at? The Word was looking at a broken, fallen, dark world that had no hope. And verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That same Word that looked at a world that was hopeless and that same word that said, let there be, let there be, <laughs> let there be light. And that which was hopeless became good. See, the, I love the word logos because that's what the Greek word, that's the Greek word for John 1.1 1, 1. and John 1.14 is the word Logos. And you know what the word logos means? It means reason. It means word, but it also means reason. And the logos, it, it, when God speaks, the scales of justice are balanced. When God speaks hope into your life, you're like this, and you get like this. When God speaks hope into your life, reason for you getting better becomes in place. The logos is the let there be spoken into lives that everyone is sure can never be. Did you hear that? The logos of God which is Jesus is the let there be from Genesis 1 that's spoken into the lives of you here today that the world around you is saying what you could never be. It's a powerful thing. That's why Jesus would never say, you're hopeless. I can't help you. The second reason that Jesus would never say, you're hopeless, is because Satan is a liar with limited authority. The superiority. You know, most people end up believing in a devil. That's, that's what causes people to come back and believe in God. Because people say, I don't believe in God anymore. And then they go out and they live their life and they try to live their life saying, there is no God, there is no God. But invariably, after a few years of that, they come running back and say, you know, I don't know if there's a God, but there sure is a devil. <laughs> there is evil that's unexplainable in the world that can't be, can't be explained just by the irrationality of human beings. There are people doing things that are just so bad and so awful and so cruel that there has to be a demonic force directing their lives. So they run back to God. However, Satan's superiority is fake news. There's a lot of propaganda about hell and how awesome the devil is. And how final his destructive attacks are on humans. But but think again. And here's the story. I just love this story. When Jesus came to earth, uh, he had these uh, 72 fairly pathetic interns. I mean, I know they were fairly pathetic because, because, because uh, all everybody had been picked over by all the other rabbis. And so they got first pick, and Jesus wasn't a part of the temple establishment, so he got, he got what was left. So Jesus got these 72 pathetic interns. And he gathers them around one day. He said, okay, guys, I'm going to send you guys out. You guys have been watching what I've been doing and praying for people and healing people and doing good for people. I want to let you go do it, okay? So, guys, go. Just go. So they went out by two, and they went all over Galilee. And I, I love what happened. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I'm up here, and I get way more excited than you do about this stuff. And I'm, it's just, I, don't, I don't know why that is, but... Uh, uh, I, I hope you can hear me today on this because this really, I thought this was so funny. And it's just, it says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So the pathetic interns go out and they find out the devil is no match even for them. And the Lord's kind of wanting to play this down, it looks like. He goes... Uh, I saw Satan, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, no big deal, I, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, and we know those are metaphors for Satan and demons, and to overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will harm you, however, do not rejoice, he's, he's just playing it down, don't get too excited, however, <laughs> however, do not rejoice that the Spirit submits to you, because like, that's, that's nothing, guys, that's, everybody knows that. Everybody knows the devil is subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But but th- there's a period there, and then there's a gap between that period and the next sentence. Remember, they had to squeeze all this in to these little books, so they couldn't, they couldn't write, well, Jesus went off and had lunch, and, and then he... No, but, but <laughs> there's a gap between heaven and at. At that time jesus full of joy through the holy spirit said yes i praise you father lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things in the wise and learned. hidden what from the wise and learned what that the devil is subject to us and reveal them to little children yes father for this is what you are pleased to do. So, so it's like Jesus is going, his disciples say, yeah, the demons are subject to us. God, we're, they're just high-fiving each other. And he said, calm down, guys. I, I saw Satan's lightning fall from heaven. Don't get too excited. Be, be excited that your name is written in heaven. And then Jesus turns to his heavenly father and goes, yes, they got it. Yes, they got it. But the devil is subject to them. He's not as powerful as they think he is. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to know that you have authority over this voice that's saying, "You're hopeless and you can't get help." Jesus said, "Hey man, hey man, you got it. You got it. I'm so excited.) So find that balance between being in denial that there is a devil. C.S. Lewis talked about that, and being terrified that there is a devil. Yes, there's a devil. Yes, there's a serpent. Yes, it's going to bring chaos into your life today and tomorrow and the next day. But every time he does, even if you're a pathetic intern, even if you're a child, you can say, shut up and get out of my life. Amen? Amen? I knew a preacher one time who cursed out the devil he would curse out the devil <laughs> I don't know I, I you know if you want to if you have all those words in your vocabulary which I know some of you do <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with you using them on the devil I'm fine totally fine with that <laughs> and finally Jesus would never say you're hopeless because you're not now, I'm actually not condemning us for saying people are hopeless because we humans, we can get in very rough shape. And as far as our ability to help others, it gets hopeless sometimes. You can't, this is not, this is not a sermon saying you can go help everybody. Because you all know somebody that you did all you could do and you had to walk away from them. And sometimes, sometimes you have to know your limitations. You can't save everybody. You can't fix everybody. But boy, have you had this experience like I have? I've done all I could do for a person and had to just say, God, I can't do any more for them. Walk away, and three years later, I run into them, and they're doing great. That happens quite often. It, it, it just, it, that hopelessness is about our realm, it's about you and me and what our limitations are. So maybe we can say you're hopeless sometimes. But you must add, Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying you're not hopeless. Uh, When we we look to Jesus, we hear hope. Matthew 12, 21, In in his name the nations will put their hope. Then they brought to him the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could see. They kind of brought him the example of what Jesus was saying, and all the people were astonished, and they said, could this be the Son of Man? Mark nine twenty three. Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, it's important to note that Jesus wasn't unable to be negative. That's really important. One day when Jesus was looking at the temple complex, he said, he said do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, not one they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on another. And another time, Jesus was, uh, in Mark, Matthew were 12, they were leaving, they were leaving Bethany, and uh, not the church Bethany, but the town Bethany, and uh, the Bethany wasn't around yet then, uh, but, <laughs> it, and the Bible says Jesus was hungry, and he saw uh, this fig tree, and he went to see if there was any fruit on the leaves, and when he reached out, he found nothing, and he said, uh, no one will ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say that. And the tree. They came back the next day, and the tree was withered. So Jesus wasn't like. Uh, Jesus wasn't like a guy who couldn't be negative, and he just couldn't say anything. You, you know people like that, right? I mean, you know people like that. The house could be burning, and they're just, oh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> I just can't. You know, I know people like that. They just, they just can't say anything negative. But Jesus wasn't a guy who couldn't be anything negative. So. If he was a guy who just was a, was hooked on being positive, you know, addicted to positivity, then it wouldn't be so meaningful that he says to me, Phil, I love you, and I'm not, and don't quit, and I, and you're going to be okay. See, Jesus' primary commitment wasn't to positivity. This is all this should encourage you. Jesus' pr- primary commitment wasn't to positivity, but to truth. That's really different. Truth is so important. That's so encouraging. When something is true, it's evident. And I love it when I, I look, I look in, and I listen to a lot of things, and I listen to all kinds of lectures, and, and, and I love it when I look into the world of science, and it's so far above me, and I, I can't grasp it most of the time. But when I look in the world of fi- science, and I find affirmation of this truth, and I find out I'm learning more and more that hopelessness, isn't scientific, but science is telling us that humans and the world itself is meant to heal and regenerate itself. I used to hear this stuff about the brain and how whatever experiences happened to you, you were stuck with. And now scientists, as they're really discovering brain mapping, they're discovering what they call the neuroplasticity of the brain. You know, I used to hear people say, if you look at pornography, it's just stuck. You're just the rest of your life. Your brain is going to be just messed up by that. But now they're discovering, no, you can reformat the brain. And, and these are not people reading the Bible saying this. And these, these are people who don't even want the Bible to be true. But they can't help themselves. <laughs> they keep proving that the Bible is true. When Jesus said You can be a new creature in Christ. He wasn't just talking about some mythical, uh, ethereal, otherworldly thing. He was talking about your human brain can be recreated to be like Jesus. I, I just finished a book called Lost Connections. And it's about neurological, biological, and sociological research about depression. And, uh, and antidepressants. And I'm not, I, please, please hear me today. Don't, don't anybody go stop taking your antidepressants today because of something I said in the sermon. Do not do that. You do that with a good counsel and you do some of these other things and then if you don't need them anymore, you stop taking them. The antidepressants save people's lives. There's no question about it. Anti-anxiety medication, all that. I told a guy this week, came to me for counseling and we actually counseled over video because he's in another state. And he started taking anti- anti-anxiety medication. I said, keep taking it. Do what I'm telling you, but keep taking your medication. But Johan Hari, who wrote the book, was on Prozac and other things for many, many years and began to research as he began to go off of it and began to find out that there's, there's, all, these other, there's all these other antidepressants that aren't being recommended by much of the medical community. and In fact, let me just give you one. There's so much there. There's so much here. in there. The book is a long book and it's full of stories and full of anecdotes and research. I've never seen a guy so thorough in his research as this guy. But let me just give you one little, one little snippet from Lost Connections in which he talked about this friend when he was very uh, living in deep depression, he had this friend that they would usually share their depression together, and they would get together and they would they would kvetch about the world and how horrible the world was and how terrible everything was, and they would just go on and on and just just dig themselves a hole. Yeah, <laughs> and he hadn't seen her in a long time, and he reconnected with her, and she he noticed she was totally different, and she had gotten into something. And I'm going to talk about this back in February when I talk about friendship. She had gotten into this thing called um, uh, loving-kindness meditation. They they, they didn't refer to the Bible or anything like that. They got into this thing called loving-kindness meditation. Here's what he said. Um, Oh, here we go. Her name was Rachel. He said she was surprised that she could change. She said this. You think that certain things aren't malleable, and she says, but they completely are. She said, you can be a total jealous monster, and you think that's just part of who you are, and you find that you can change by just doing some basic things. He goes on to say, as Rachel and I spent a few days together wandering around, eating in diners, I could see a real change in her, and I could see the irony Uh. I could see I could see the irony right away. Sorry. I start I started to envy it, he said. Rachel looked at me and said, I've pursued happiness for myself my whole life and I'm exhausted. And I don't I didn't feel any closer to it because where does it end? The bar just keeps getting moved. But this, here's what she said. This different way of thinking, she said, seems to offer a real sense of pleasure and a path away from the depressing, anxiety-provoking thoughts that i had been plagued with. Now that is two people who didn't even refer to Jesus and didn't even refer to the Bible because the truth, here's, here's why you say, well, that means, that, that means we don't need Jesus. No, 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 it doesn't mean that. It means the truth of Jesus is embedded in human beings' biology. It's embedded in the universe. It's embedded in our consciousness. The Bible, Paul said to the, to the people of Mars Hill, in God you live and move and have your being. He said that to a bunch of pagans. In God you live and move and have your being. The, the paths to truth are always going to lead us back to God's truth. It's so exciting, man. It's so exciting. You, you are so lucky to be here right now. You are so lucky to be here. You're so lucky to be in a place where we have found the fountain. Does it mean we have it all together? No, no, no. In fact, there are things they discover sometimes. As I read other people, I read what the secular people say. Sometimes they discover things that I know the Christians don't know. But nevertheless, you should be really grateful that you have discovered the fountain of truth. Do you get what I said? You've discovered the fountain of truth. And his name is Jesus. You've discovered the fountainhead of wisdom. And his name is Jesus. You've discovered the source of life. And his name is Jesus. You've discovered the hope of the world. And his name is Jesus. And if you'll just read that Bible, if you'll just open your mind and start reading that Bible, I like to read all these other books, but I don't really need to. I like to listen to I like to listen to psychologists' lectures and philosophers. I love to listen to that stuff. But I don't have to, because it's all in the word. I, come on, people. Do you get this? Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. We've been saying you must be born again for years. That's boy, talk about a word of hope. Born again. I want to read to you in closing today. My brother uh, has been through quite a quite a difficult three or four years. He and Judy did such a brave and noble thing. It should be written up somewhere. People want to talk about everything that's negative, it seems like. The media wants to get on the negative stuff. But here's a, here's a man and woman who a little little boy that whose mother came thinking she was going to an abortion clinic, and it was a, a, a clinic that offered uh, alternatives that my sister-in-law was running. And long story short, uh, they persuaded her to have the baby, but didn't, she didn't want to keep the baby. And she would only agree, Joe and Judy were in their late 50s, she would only agree to let them take Isaiah. So this little African-American boy becomes a part of their life. They were not ready for this. They were not ready for this in any way. Were they prepared for this? And of course, Judy, this is like, like I'm running, my dates are running to go. Three or four years ago, Judy passed away and left my brother with this. I think he was 11 at the time, 10 or 11, with this little boy. And I don't mean this offensive to my brother, but he just wasn't, he wasn't equipped for this. And um, I asked him this week, I said, Joe, write me a couple of paragraphs about how it's been. Because when they were here, I think it was three years ago, wasn't it, Sherry, that they were here? Or what? uh, Anyway, they were here, and and Sherry and I just it just looked hopeless, guys. Joe had taken him to California, and he was absolutely a terrorist. He was a terrorist. First of all, he's huge. He was about... Six foot tall then. He's 14 now and he's six foot three and weighs 185 pounds. They're 14. But he was already an enormous kid. So physically my brother couldn't handle him. And he was just attacking my brother. Just uh, sometimes physically and certainly verbally. And here's, here's Joe's words, okay. He said, Isaiah has always been a strong-willed child. After Judy's passing, he became incorrigible. Many reasons, including the fact that he was adopted, which I'm sure creates some abandonment issues. After Judy's passing, Isaiah learned that we came to a very difficult decision to remove her life support. In his mind, he concluded that I killed her. The next four years and a few months became a war in our home, and I do mean war. Zay became violent. He gave me a black eye, busted lip. I know they called the police. Several Joe called the police several times because it was either really hurt him or get relief threw anything he could get his hands on at me, told me on a regular basis that I was not his dad. None of my DNA was in him. I wasn't sure if this whole thing was going to end well. One day, I was praying and asking God all the questions that would come naturally in a situation like this. Will it ever change? Why was I left with him? No amount of punishment seemed to work taking away his ps4 taking his phone only made him more outraged rewarding good behavior worked for a very short time sometimes only minutes most of the time he would come back and apologize but the behavior continued we went to a couple of different counselors he was diagnosed with asperger's at one point uh and my own parentheses the strategies were recommended and they were helpful to a point they went to a couple of different counselors last summer zay spent some time with friends in new jersey sunday afternoon I got a call from our pastor friend that Zay was riding with on the way to lunch. He said, Isaiah has something to tell you. He said, Isaiah came on the phone, I got baptized today. I knew that he'd been baptized in water a couple years before I so I thought, well, maybe they had water baptism service and Zay decided to get baptized again. Pastor Pete said, tell him how you got baptized, to which Zay said, with the Holy Spirit. I wish I could say that a change in behavior was instant and dramatic after he returned from New Jersey. Instead, the change was very gradual. But then at the end of March this year, just one day, without another argument, without anything on my part, this wonderful, respectful young man came out. The last four months have been the greatest months Isaiah Isaiah has had since he was a toddler. To say it today, Isaiah and I started to live the life I dreamed about when he first came into my life. Before th- before three months ago, every trip that we took was a disaster. Because m- my brother loves to take trips, and that was, he-, he imagined this young boy, they were going to just do things together. And Isaiah, you know, w- when, when you're on the autism spectrum, uh, you've got to have r- routine. So this was this was a bad combination. These two should have never gotten married. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so... Uh, recently, we took a vacation to Florida, and for the first time, we did not have a ripple of a problem. I really like my new sign in my house. Is everything in that Isaiah story purely supernatural? Of course not. Joe made a key change in Isaiah's educational approach and care approach that he didn't talk about there, but I know he did it, uh, along, but along with the encounter with the Holy Spirit but that's missing the point. Whether hope is purely supernatural or naturally causal uh, is, is really beyond the point entirely. The point is you're not hopeless. And Jesus can help you. How many of you know Lamentations 3.22? If you don't know Lamentations 3.22, you need to get to know it. Because it says this, Yet this I call to mind. Therefore I have hope. Some of you here today need some hope. Something's going on in your life with your kids, with your money, with your marriage, with your physical body, and you need some hope. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Listen to this next line. For his compassions never fail. Look at your neighbor and say, his compassions never fail. God's not your problem today. I know you got problems. I know you got problems. And I know some things aren't working well. And some things end in death. That's true. Some things end with death. That's part of the human condition. You can have tragedy, though, and it doesn't have to be hell. And have tragedy, it doesn't have to be hell. His compassion never will. Our prayer partners are getting in place right now. I'm telling you, I want you to get down here. I want if, you, if you're running into hopelessness in your life, I want you to get down. Anybody can come down here for prayer. It doesn't mean you, you may have your situation, may have nothing to do with the sermon, but anybody can come down for prayer for anything. But we, I really want you to get down here who have a problem where people are going, you can't get better. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. And he would never say, you're hopeless and I can't help you. But he's here to help you. He's here to help you today. There's communion available. If you just want to worship, go worship. Let's come. This is response time at Bethany. Come on.